All right. Was that a good time of worship together? Wow. And how about the three young ladies, huh? We're going to call them the dynamic threesome. That was awesome. I loved it. Have you been praying for America this week? Have you been praying for our government leaders this week? That was our theme and our focus last Sunday. I was a little distressed this week. Of course, you're all aware of the news that our, our president contracted the coronavirus, was tested positive along with his wife. That's also true for uh, Joe Biden and his wife. I believe all four of them had been tested positive. I was frankly... Um, I don't know what the right word is, shocked, distressed, disturbed, at how many people online and social media were talking about a wish that our president would die from the coronavirus. I don't know about you, but I've never prayed for someone to die. Have you? Well, I hope you haven't done that this week. But it reminded me that uh, we're a divided nation in so many ways. And it reminded me of other experiences in my life, I remember, it's probably been six, eight years ago before the, the current president was in office, I remember being at a large uh, public event where Christians were coming together, as I recall, it was around the Christmas season, and a woman uh, engaged me in conversation, a total random stranger at this event, and somehow in that conversation we began talking about our current president who was serving at that time. And she told me that she was praying Psalm 109 for our president. Now, I don't know if you have Psalm 109 memorized. I did not. But Psalm 109 uh, does not speak about our president. It speaks in another context. But in that psalm, it said, let his days be few. Let another take his office. And I'm okay with those two thoughts as they're understood. But then the next two phrases said, let his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. That should not be our spirit, regardless of how you feel about any president or governor for that matter. And I would confess I've been guilty of uh, referring to our governor as Governor Gruesome and other terms. Um, And I've been guilty of not praying for our leaders. We need to pray for our government. We need to pray for our president, for others in office, our governor and our mayors, as I suggested last week. Probably the most disturbing thing that I observed this week in the context of my message last Sunday was one of my friends on Facebook, a pastor, who posted some very Uh, I'll call them derogatory and mean things about our current sitting president. And one of the women who had been a part of his former church congregation responded in a very positive manner saying simply, Have you been praying? Have you considered praying for our president? To which he responded again in a very negative, derogatory, mean, mocking the idea of praying for our president. We live in a world that is desperately in need of prayer. We live in a country that's desperately in need of prayer. And boy, do we live in a state that's desperately in need of prayer, don't we? 
Are we all on that page? And so last Sunday, my ambition, my hope, my goal was to challenge us, myself included, to be in prayer for our country, for our nation. I suggested to you, it's not my place, my goal, my ambition to tell you how to vote. I want to tell you to vote. It's disturbing to me that 25 million American evangelical Christians are not even registered to vote. And I suggested to you last week, I don't know if we still have some of those registration forms in back this morning or not. I forgot to check. But I want to urge you, vote. Be educated. Know what the issues are. I love a message I got from a friend of mine this last week that said, the issue isn't who I'm voting for, the issue is what I'm voting for, the values that matter to me. And that's why I suggested to you last week we should, be, we should be voting in tune with biblical values, what this book teaches. And so this morning, I want to urge you not only to be praying, but I want to suggest to you how we ought to be praying. Daniel chapter 9 has captured my thinking for the last two or three weeks. I've probably read this chapter several dozen times. Because the impact of this chapter is so significant and so strategic. And to understand this prayer of Daniel, you need to back up and remember who Daniel is and where Daniel is and how he got where he is. Most of us, when we hear the name Daniel, what's the first thing we think of? The lion's den, exactly. That's the great story in Daniel's life, the story of the lion's den. But to understand the life of Daniel, to understand Daniel's prayer that I want to read in just a moment, you need to back up and remember that there was a point in history where God executed judgment on His people and on the city of Jerusalem, bringing in the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar, who sacked, destroyed, and ruined that entire city, and took captives back to Babylon. Among those captives was a young man, probably in his middle teenage years, a young man by the name of Daniel. And if you're familiar with the story of Daniel in the book that he wrote, Daniel was trained in the courts of the emperor of the Babylonian Empire. And he rose over time to a place of great significance in that kingdom, where he was responsible for others in leadership below him. Daniel had a place of respect, a place of honor, a place of significance in the Babylonian Empire. And it's in that place that we meet Daniel in Daniel chapter 9. He's... He's been through the lion's den back in chapter 6. And in chapter 9, we find him not with an open Bible, but with an open scroll. And he's reading. And I want you to notice his prayer. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, your translation may say the son of Xerxes, that's the Greek name for Ahasuerus, the son of Ahasuerus of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. 
So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek Him by prayer and supplications, with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps His covenant and loving kindness for those who love Him and keep His commandments. We have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly, and rebelled, even turning aside from Your commandments and ordinances. Moreover, We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us open shame, as it is this day. To the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away in all the countries to which you have driven them, because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against you, open shame. Belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. Nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his teachings, which he set before us through his servants, the prophets. Indeed, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, not obeying your voice. So the curse has been poured out on us along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God. For we have sinned against him. Thus he has confirmed his words which he had spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us, to bring on us great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what was done in Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come on us. Yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquity and giving attention to your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it on us. For the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds which he has done. But we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who have brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as it is to this day, we have sinned, we have been wicked. O Lord, in accordance with all your righteous acts, let now your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. For because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach to all those around us. So now, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplications. For your sake, O Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear, open our eyes and see our des- open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own, but on account of your great compassion. Oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, listen and take action for your own sake. Oh, my God, do not delay, because your city and your people are called by your name. And there are so many things here that have spoken to my heart and to my life, and I don't have nearly enough time this morning to share all that's in my heart. But I learned from Daniel this morning. I learned from Daniel in his prayer. I learned from Daniel that prayer for a wicked nation begins with repentance for sin. It doesn't begin with us asking for God's blessing. 
It doesn't begin with us asking for God to solve this problem, to cure a pandemic. It begins with a prayer for repentance. A prayer of repentance for sin. And there's at least three big ideas here. There's others that perhaps could be included in my thoughts. But I've tried to organize my thoughts around three big ideas. That prayer for our nation must begin with prayers of repentance. And I want you to notice in the first two verses of this chapter, the reason for repentance, the reason for his prayer of repentance, that the reason, the reason he's praying this prayer is why? What was Daniel doing that prompted this prayer? What was Daniel doing that caused him to pour out his heart in this prayer of genuine Heartfelt repentance for sin. Not his own sin, but what? The sin of the nation. He doesn't say, I have sinned, I have done this, I have done that. He says, we have sinned. We have acted wickedly. And so he's praying this prayer. What is it that prompted it? Tells us real clearly that he observed in the books. That he was reading the scrolls. He was reading, if you will, his Bible. He was reading the Old Testament scrolls. And Daniel was at a point in significant time, and he's reading the prophet Jeremiah. And what is it that he observes as he reads the prophet Jeremiah? He's reading the fact that the prophet Jeremiah told the people of God that when God brought his judgment... It was going to be judgment of 70 years of desolation. 70 years of judgment on the nation of Israel. And there are several reasons why it was 70 years. But Jeremiah clearly communicated God's truth to his people. That they were going to be in Babylon. The city of Jerusalem was going to be in desolation for 70 years. Why is that significant? Well, because Daniel tells us exactly what year it is. Because he says it's the first year of Darius, when he was made the ruler. It's the year 539 B.C. We know exactly when that date occurred. We also know exactly when Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon conquered Jerusalem. And as Daniel is reading this portion of Jeremiah that we're going to read in just a moment, as Daniel is reading this portion of Jeremiah, he understands that it's been 67 years that he's been in Babylon. He's been there for 67 years. So if Daniel was in his mid-teens, let's just pick the number in the middle, if Daniel was 15 when he was taken from Jerusalem to Babylon, and 67 years have gone by, how old is Daniel now? Do the math. Someone help me. 82? Is that right? So Daniel has gone in this whole experience of his life in Babylon from being a young teenage boy to being an older man. And he's reading in the Scriptures 70 years. And 66 years have gone by. 67 years have gone by. So, 
If you were Jeremiah and you were reading this, what would your first thought be? Do the math. That's what Jeremiah's doing. Three more years. We only have three more years. And so as he's pouring out his heart to God, this prayer of repentance, his understanding is this judgment is going to continue, but in three years it's going to be over. What if this morning you were in significant financial straits? Bills were piling up. You didn't have sufficient money to pay your bills. And God said to you, hang in there. In three more years, it's all going to be taken care of. In three more years, it's all going to be over. In three more years, it's all going to be good. What would your response be? Three more years. Can't wait. I I can make three more years. What if you had a serious health condition? What if the doctors had said, your health condition is terminal? You do not have long to live. And God came to you and said, we got this. Hang in there for three more years. What would your response be? Praise God. And so here's Daniel. And he's reading Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 11 to 12. Where Jeremiah says this. This whole land will be desolation and horror. These nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then it will be when 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, declares the Lord, for their iniquity and the land of the Chaldeans, and I will make it an everlasting desolation. He could have also been reading Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon... I will visit you and fulfill my good word for you to bring you back to this place. So Daniel's reading God's promise of 70 years. Oh, by the way, how many of you are familiar with Jeremiah 29.11? Yeah, Jeremiah 29.11, this may be a surprise to you, but it comes after Jeremiah 29.10. Shock. And so the promise that we hear communicated a lot in Christian circles today... And it has value. I don't want to diminish that. But you need to understand this promise first in the context in which it was written. Because Daniel has just said, or Jeremiah has just said, 70 years, I'm going to bring you home. And then God says what? For I know the plans that I have for you. Plans for your welfare, not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Daniel is reading those words in the prophet Jeremiah. And his response to these words is not, even so come quickly. It is not, you know, all the possible prayers he could have prayed. A prayer of rejoicing, a prayer of celebration, a prayer of anticipation. It's a prayer of what? Repentance for sin. Daniel responds to the words of Jeremiah with an overwhelming sense of sadness and sorrow because of the sin of the nation. And when you remember that Daniel is a godly man, God has honored his life, God has honored his commitment to the Lord, 
And this godly man is praying this prayer of repentance for the nation, identifying with their sin, their disobedience, their failure to listen to the prophets. A wicked, sinful nation. And the thing that prompted him to this prayer was the scriptures. Not a book like you and I hold in our hands or a phone or tablet or whatever you're using this morning. But his scroll that he's reading, he's reading the scriptures and it prompts him to a prayer of repentance. And I wonder if the reason I don't feel more compulsion for repentance in my life and I wonder if the reason we as Christians in America today don't feel more of a compulsion to repent, to turn from sin, to turn from wickedness, to identify with the fact that we are a part of this nation and a part of this culture that is turned away from God. Why is it I don't have that overwhelming spirit of repentance? Is it because... Is it because we're not in the book? Is it because we're not people of the book? Is it because we're not investing time, energy, and effort in the Scriptures? Is it because our lives are consumed with entertainment? Our lives are consumed with sports, or movies, or television, or social media. Our life is consumed with all these things. The writer of the book of Hebrews said this about the Scriptures. The Word of God is alive and powerful. It's like a two-edged sword. It separates soul and spirit. It digs into bone and marrow. And it's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. That's what God's Word does in your life and my life when we... Invest time and energy in reading it. Are we not more struck with a need of this nation to return to God, to repent? Is it because unlike Daniel, we're not in the book? Paul said in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17... He said, all Scripture is inspired of God. Literally, God breathed. God has breathed out Scripture. He has given it life and energy. He has breathed it. All Scripture is inspired of God and is profitable. It's beneficial. It accomplishes what God wants it to accomplish. All Scripture is inspired of God and is profitable for four things. He says it's profitable, first of all, for doctrine, for teaching. The Scriptures tell us the truth. The Scriptures tell us the truth. All the time, without failure, without exception, this book speaks truth. And yet, For most Americans, and sadly I think for many Christians, we get our understanding of truth in so many other sources. Whether it's a college professor, 
whether it's a TV news anchor, whether it's a professional athlete, whether it's a movie star. We have people proclaiming their truth constantly. Whether it's Dr. Phil, whether it's Oprah, there are people declaring their truth all the time that you and I are subjected to every single day. Where should we be finding truth? Where should we be looking for truth? Paul says, all Scripture is inspired of God and is profitable for teaching, for truth. If you want to know the truth, go to this book. And I've shared this before, and I can share some pretty funny illustrations of this. But people come to me for counseling. Big mistake. I'm not the most empathetic guy on the planet. I'm not the guy that's going to cry. Well, yeah, I'll cry sometimes. But all I know to do when someone comes and, and talks with me and there's an issue, there's a problem, there's a challenge, the question I'm going to always ask is, what does the Bible say? Because that's where you're going to find the truth, regardless of what the issue is, right? That's where the truth is. It's profitable for doctrine. It's also profitable, he says, for reproof. And my analogy of these four words that Paul uses for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. My analogy is hiking on a mountain trail. And you, you see where the trail is. You see where the truth is. This is where you're supposed to be hiking. This is where the path is. But if you're like my brother Rick, who always wanted to kind of cut his own path, and he'd be off over here somewhere on the side, off of the trail, what does that person need who's off of the trail and wandered away from the truth? They need reproof. They need someone to say to them, hey, you're off the path. The life you're living isn't in, in line with the truth of God. You're off the path. You're wandering in the weeds. You're off the path. It's profitable for teaching the truth. It's profitable for reproof to point out that you're off the path. When you're off the path, what do you need? You need someone to correct you. Get you back on the path. Here's how to get back on the path. It's profitable for teaching the truth. It's profitable for reproving you and telling you when you're off the path. And it's profitable to help you get back onto the path so that you're back on the truth path. And once you're back on the truth path, what do you need? Instruction in righteousness to keep walking on the path. And so Paul captures that, that analogy that I use of, of hiking on a path. And he says the scriptures are profitable. Beneficial. They serve us in significant strategic ways. They teach us the truth. They show us where the path of righteousness is, how to live our life, where to live our life. It tells us when we're off the path. It shows us how to get back on the path. And then it shows us and tells us how to keep walking on the path. I don't know about you, but I need that in my life. Because I have a tendency to do what? Wander off the path. There's an old hymn that has that line in it. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. There is a proneness, a tendency in the human spirit to wander away from God's truth. Our nation has done that, and sadly, many Christians have done that. Many Christians today are off the truth path and don't know it. 
Many who claim the name of Christ, many who would claim Jesus as Savior, are off the path and don't know it. I was deeply disturbed this week. A survey came across my email from Arizona Christian University. They have a department at the university that they call the Cultural Research Center. And they surveyed, they surveyed Catholics, mainline Protestants, uh, charismatic Christians, and evangelical Christians. That had divided into four categories. The one I was most concerned about was the one that I identify with. Those of us who claim to follow Christ, those of us who claim to be followers of this book. And the results of their survey said 62% of evangelical Christians do not believe that the faith you embrace matters as much or more than simply having faith. 62%, 6 out of 10, believe it doesn't really matter what faith you embrace. You just need to choose one. Is that a staggering statistic to you? That's disturbing. 75% reject the truth that we are not Basically, good people, we are sinners. 75% deny one of the core truths of Scripture that you and I are sinners who fall short of the glory of God. If you're not a sinner, what logically follows from that? You do not need a Savior. That's disturbing. This book teaches us the truth. Why is it that 75% of these evangelical Christians who were surveyed don't believe that we are all sinners who fall short of God's glory? Why is that? Because they're getting their truth from all these other sources. And you're going to find that out in just a minute. Oh, this list is just troubling. 52%, just a little over half. Do not believe that there are absolute moral truths that apply to everyone all the time. Half. There is not absolute moral truth. 58% do not believe that people cannot earn a place in heaven by being good or doing good enough works. So 58% of those that were surveyed who fall into the camp that we would identify with as evangelical followers of Jesus believe that their hope of heaven is based on how good they can be and the good stuff they can do. Fifty-three percent do not believe that success is consistent obedience to God. Forty-four percent reject the idea that the Bible is unambiguous in its teaching about abortion. 
43% do not believe that when Jesus Christ was on the earth, he was fully human and did not sin. So more than four out of ten people believe that Jesus sinned while walking on this planet. Forty-two percent reject the truth that the Bible is the primary source of moral guidance. Forty percent do not believe that human life is sacred. Twenty-eight percent are not personally certain to have eternal, eternal salvation only because they have confessed sin and accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. Twenty-eight percent reject the idea that God is the basis of all truth. 26% do not believe that the Bible is the Word of God and is trustworthy and reliable. So, why is this nation in the trouble it's in? Is it because of them out there, or is it because of weans, usans? We who claim to be the followers of Jesus Christ and reject basic biblical truth now maybe maybe part of the responsibility for this is because churches are failing to teach the truth I don't think that's ever been true in this place this book is held up every Sunday morning and multiple times during the week right But I find it disturbing that you and I live in what I would believe I'm accurately calling a wicked, immoral culture that has drifted far from the path of God's moral truth and is desperately in need of being called back to that path. Desperately in need. And... As we pray for our country, we need to be we need to be in this book. We need to be in line with the truths that this book teaches. Because like Daniel, who's praying out of the scriptures that he's reading, we ought to be praying out of the scriptures in this book and praying for our country. We need to be praying prayer of repentance. And in order to do that, we need more and more to be people whose lives are marked and characterized by devotion, commitment to this book. That's imperative. Psalm 1 says it simply, Blessed is the man or woman, boy or girl, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. That man, that woman, who walks in the path of the ungodly is not going to be blessed by God. Is that clear in Psalm 1? Blessed is the man who walks not in the path of the ungodly, or stands in the path of sinners, or sits in the seat of the scornful. But, I love that word, but. 
But what does that man do that wants to be blessed by God? What does that woman do that wants to experience God's blessing in his or her life? But he meditates in the scriptures day and night. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, or stands in the path of sinners, or sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. And night. He will be like a tree planted by rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season. Its leaves shall not wither, and whatsoever he does shall prosper. Is that the kind of life you want? It's the kind of life I want. But the ungodly are not so. The contrast to that flourishing fruit tree that's producing fruit in its season, the contrast for the ungodly is what? But the ungodly are not so. They are like the chaff which the wind bloweth away. When wheat is threshed and the the husk of the wheat is separated from the the kernel of wheat, that that chaff, that husk, is thrown into the air so that the wind can disperse it and blow it away and the wheat falls to the ground and is captured and saved. The ungodly are like that chaff that's blown away. Do you want your life to be like that chaff or like that tree planted Right by the water source. We need more and more desperately to be men and women of this book. Our lives need to be guided and directed by the truths of this book. Not by the wisdom of the world around us. Not by the pundits on television. The writers in the newspapers and magazines. The talk show hosts. The athletes. Musicians. There's only one source of truth. That's God. God is the source of all truth. Bottom line. And He has chosen, in His infinite wisdom, to give us His very words. Not the best thoughts of men. Not the best wisdom of of brilliant people. He's told us exactly how He wants us to live, and how our lives can be blessed by Him. A few weeks ago, we were in Joshua chapter chapter 1. And one of the core ideas that we talked about in Joshua chapter 1 is that great eighth verse. Where God says to Joshua, in the context of him now leading in Moses' place, God says to Joshua... This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth. But you shall meditate therein day and night, so that you may do according to all that is written therein. Then you will make your way prosperous, and you will have good success. Do you notice the theme here? Why is it? I'll tell you why it is. You don't know what the question was I was going to ask. Why is it that it's so hard, so difficult for us to spend time in this book? Why is it I can open my phone and spend hours on Facebook? I can open my phone and watch highlights of bicycle racing for hours at a time. Why is it, I don't do television, but I'll say that, why is it I can turn on the television after dinner and leave it on until I click it off and go to bed? Why is it I can do all of those things in my life, 
But I have trouble sitting down with this book open and prayerfully asking God to communicate His truth to me. Why is it that's so hard? Well, the answer is the same answer we wound up with last week. You and I are in a spiritual battle. You and I have an enemy. You and I have an enemy that the Scripture says walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And one of his primary methods of devouring us, one of his primary strategies, one of his primary techniques is to keep us away from God's truth. To keep us away from God's Word. And the thought crossed my mind, if Daniel was not a man of the Scriptures, if Daniel was not a man who read his Scriptures, even though his life was marked by prayer three times a day, the whole reason he wound up in the lion's den was why? Because of his habit of prayer. But if prayer was this huge part of his life, this consistent habit of his life, but he was not in the Scriptures... We probably never would have had a Jeremiah chapter or a Daniel chapter nine. It would have gone from chapter eight to chapter twelve or whatever. But Daniel was also a man of the book who invested his life, energy, and time in the book. And so I wrote to myself these words there's no repentance. When I'm not regularly in God's Word, I fail to see my sin or our nation's sin because I'm not in the Scriptures. The culture determines my understanding of right and wrong, true and false. My friends or the media, school teachers, we, we need to be people of this book. I, You and I live at perhaps one of the most strategic, significant times in the history of this country. Perhaps. I'm no authority on that. It just seems to me these are strategic times. And more than ever, the truth of Scripture needs to be understood. It needs to be taught. And most importantly, it needs to be lived. One of my great heroes in the Old Testament is Ezra. And it says that Ezra devoted himself to studying the Scriptures, living it, and teaching it. We need to be men and women whose lives are characterized by the truth of this book. And we will never come to a point of personal repentance for our own sins... Nor will we come to a place of recognizing and acknowledging the sins of our culture unless we're people of the book. And so, that's my admonition this morning. We need to be people of the book. And however that plays out in your life, whether it's a a few minutes in the morning before you begin your day, with an open Bible asking God to speak through His Scripture, whether it's a a habit you would cultivate with family as you would gather together as a family around the Scriptures, 
We need to be people of the book. I said this last week, I'll say it again. My, my goal here is not to back up a dump truck of guilt. Because I'm talking to myself this morning too. You know, it's easy for pastors to spend time in the scriptures to prepare to preach. It's easy for pastors to spend time in the scriptures in order to teach. It's easy for pastors to do that and to never invest personal time just simply reading the scriptures. And there's been times in my life when I've been guilty of that. Life gets busy. Life gets crazy. I don't have time. But I still got to stand up on Sunday morning to preach. Life is crazy for all of us. But I believe that in these strategic days, the strategic election that's coming, this time of pandemic, this time of deep division in our country, this time of gross immorality in our nation. I've written a prayer of repentance. I'm going to save that for next week because my time is gone. But next Sunday, we're going to share together a prayer of repentance for our country. And I want to urge you, spend time this week in God's Word. Spend time this week praying for our country. Pray for our leaders, our president. Please pray for our governor. We need help here, right? And as you pray for those government leaders, let me circle back to Paul's admonition last week in 1 Timothy 2. Because Paul's concern in those prayers was, first of all, for salvation. And so we ought to be praying the government leaders would come to know Jesus. Government leaders would place their faith and their trust in Jesus. I don't know where our president is in terms of his faith. God knows. Others may have hints and ideas. But he needs to know Jesus if he doesn't. Our governor needs to know Jesus. The mayor of our city needs to know Jesus. Because it doesn't matter how many wise, godly counselors surround someone. If they don't have Jesus in their life, they don't have anything. Lord, we desperately need you. And Lord, forgive us because... I fear we don't really believe that. Many of us who claim the name of Jesus believe that all the problems of the world are going to be solved after the election. Whether we have a new president or the sitting president continues to serve. We have this crazy idea that somehow this election is going to solve all of our problems. Lord, remind us afresh this morning that you're the problem solver, not us. We're the problem makers. Lord, we desperately need you. Lord, we desperately need you to step into this country. We desperately need you to draw this nation back to yourself. We desperately need you to step into the state of California to draw this state back to yourself. Lord Jesus, we need you to step this morning into our city, the city of Norwalk, the surrounding communities that are represented here, Long Beach, Bellflower, Whittier, Santa Fe, all these cities, Lord, 
We need You to step in. Lord, we need You to step onto this corner. We need You to bring us as a church under our faces before You. We need to bring us that you need to bring us as a church onto our knees, looking to you and trusting you, believing that you alone are the problem solver. You alone are the solution to all the ills and the troubles and the sins that mark this land. Lord, we need you to step into each of our lives individually. We need you to step into our lives and expose to us our sin, our disobedience. We need you to step into our lives and cause us, by your Holy Spirit, to grieve over our sin. That we need you to step into our lives and to draw us individually in a spirit of repentance, to turn from sin and to turn to you with gratitude and thanksgiving that you are that merciful, gracious, forgiving God. I agree with that old-time revivalist, Gypsy Smith. When Gypsy was asked about where revival begins, he said to draw a circle and then step inside that circle and do everything you can to make sure that everything inside that circle is right with God. Lord, might we do that this morning as we reflect upon the truths of your word, as we read and memorize and meditate upon scripture. Help us to come to that point of making sure everything's right between me and you. Because that's where revival for this nation is going to begin. It's not going to begin in Sacramento. It's not going to begin in Washington. It's going to begin right here in this circle where I stand. Lord, again, I simply say, Lord, we need you. We desperately need you. Every hour, every minute, every second, we need you. Help us to embrace that simple truth my prayer this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. I think that uh, God is wonderful how He speaks through lots of different people the same message and we're hearing the message of praying for our nation, praying for our politicians. I'm hearing that a lot. You know, we're made in the image of God and um, it would be easy for me to say Clancy is beloved, right? You would say, of course she is. It would be easy if I said, Dawn was fearfully and wonderfully made. Right? It would be easy for me and you to say that Daniel is cherished. And that Tim Lansing was worth giving heaven up for. Right? You would say, yeah, sure. But listen to this. Kamala is beloved. Donald was fearfully and wonderfully made. Mike is cherished. And Joe, he was worth giving up heaven for. Just make sure your perspective is in the right place and pray hard because that is our only weapon. Our only weapon is prayer.
And Jesus, he's in control. He'll take care of it, right? And we got to pray even more so now.
alone are my strength and shield. To you alone may my spirit yield. What's that next line say? What's it say? Someone help me out here. You alone are my heart's desire. My prayer is this morning as we leave this place that we would embrace the truth of that, that great song. You alone are my strength and shield. There's nothing else we can trust in. You alone, you alone are my heart's desire. So as the church leaves the building, as the church leaves these premises, you are the church, we are the church, right? We're it, not the building. As the church leaves these premises, we go into a world, into a culture that desperately needs to know truth. They need to know the truth about Jesus. And we are the ones who are going to carry that truth to a lost and needy world. My prayer is that God would strengthen you and enable each one of us to be the men and women of God that He needs us to be in this, in this wicked, immoral, perverse culture. May it be true in my life, and may it be true in your life this week. May God bless each one of you.